0: From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and Biketalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk.
1: Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Nick. Hey, guys. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Hey, Lindsay. Seamus, what's going on? You look down today.
2: I was just reading this article, Survival Guide for Humanity, um, this IPCC report. It's really, really bleak, really depressing.
1: What's IPCC?
2: What's the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Uh-huh. Yeah. And
3: as we all know, we cannot get to our climate goals without bikes.
2: Bikes and micromobility, I think it's important. Correct. Right, like scooters Absolutely. and
1: stuff like that. One E-bikes,
3: wheel. trikes, adaptive bikes, EVs, electric vehicles won't scale in time. They're great, but it, we cannot get there in time. And the climate scientists have done the math, and we interviewed them on Bike Talk. We need alternatives to EVs and that's walking bikes and transit.
2: Yeah, they say that we need deep, rapid
1: and sustained
2: greenhouse gas emission reductions.
3: But the problem with transit is transit also needs bikes.
1: Right. So So transit needs bikes for the first mile and the last mile.
3: Exactly. If we're going to reach our climate goals, we need bikes.
1: Well, we have a great show today. If you're looking for something to read, We have a couple of authors on today who have written wonderful books about biking. On Freedom Road is is one of them. And the other one is uh, by Dr. Marlon Moncrief, Desire, Discrimination, and Determination. A lot of our listeners probably know who Major Taylor was, one of the first superstar athletes of the 20th century. But this book is really part memoir and part exploration of the Black experience in cycling with the major focus on, on the UK, the US and French riders. I think, Nick, you did that, right? Yeah,
0: I talked to Dr. Moncrief about his book. It's a good interview. Here it is. So we have Dr. Marlon Lee Moncrief, author of Desire, Discrimination, Determination. What's the book about?
4: It's about cycling, our love for cycling, but told through the lives of Black people people black champions in the sport racers team owners leisure cyclists just coming together and telling their stories about their experiences
0: you were a professional uh, racer or?
4: oh well i wasn't a professional racer but i wrote, wrote at elite level so i didn't get i think it paid for my races i didn't have a team support me but over here in the, in the uk you can rise through the ranks you start as a novice a fourth cat third cat second cat first cat and if you get enough points, you can become an elite rider. So you are racing against pros in, in some races. But yeah, I, I started racing in 1994. I started as a time trial racer, race against the clock, race of truth, road racing. And then I found track cycling um, quite late, but I was probably better at track sprinting than I was at um, road racing and time trial. And I was okay at care time trialing, you, know, you know, you know, one of the odd races, you know, around the country and that, but for track sprinting. I've been on national, you know, European and world podiums for track sprinting.
0: Do you have like an excerpt or anything, or do you want to tell us parts of this book?
4: The book was really, there are lots of critical incidents that made me want to write this book. And being from Britain, being born in London, my parents are from Jamaica, but being born in London and always being into sport and, and looking at the way in which Great Britain represents itself across the world in different sports, For cycling, it's always been quite a white representation in the sport. And, you know, I've represented Great Britain at cycling. I know of of one or two other black cyclists who had as well. But when it came to London 2012 and and when Great Britain were at the the height of their forces, if you want, for cycling, it's very much um, an all sort of white experience. And it was sort of the way that I described in the book was where the celebration of being British through patriotism turned into... Celebration of ethnic nationalism whiteness, and that kind of concerned me. So, I felt the need to give the narrative of the forgotten, if you want, the marginalized, and that's what the book does. So, it yeah. does really.
0: And so, do you give examples of other people doing like what you're doing?
4: Yeah, just like looking at the introduction to the book, it's, it's very much a visual book, it's got lots of photographs in it, um, lots of slogans, lots of big quotes from the cyclist, but the visual that I start off with in the book is in fact not a British cyclist it's an American cyclist called Cassius Clay. The reason why I started the book with Cassius Clay was because he became what self claimed the greatest boxer in the world as Muhammad Ali. Not a lot of people know about the reason as to why he became a boxer is because his bicycle was stolen when he was young from the Louisville hometown fair and when he complained about that to a the policeman, the police, you know, was so angry, he said, I'm going to whoop the thief, you know, find the thief, I'm going to whoop him. The policeman said, oh, calm down, young young man, you know, why don't you come and try some boxing? And for every knockout punch he threw after that, that was because of the loss of his beloved bicycle. That's that's what I talk about, the love of riding the bike through the greatest boxer. But also, I start with Muhammad Ali, because of his voice in championing black people in that respect. And, and as, as I said earlier, the, the critical moment for me was seeing London 2012, where... You know, being from Britain, I grew up in a multicultural environment, black and white people, you know, white friends, black friends, you know, that's what I grew up But My love for cycling was, was only being celebrated by white athletes, and so I felt the need to champion the black voices in a similar way to what Muhammad Ali was doing and through his sport as well. So I start the book with the introduction called I'm the Greatest. You know, that's what he always used to say, but I tell the story of him becoming a champion boxer through the loss of his beloved bicycle. So yeah, that's how the book starts. And then we sort of introduce the cyclists and they, they start to tell their stories in terms of how they got into the sport. And we follow their stories throughout the book.
0: Well, that's a strong start. I didn't know that story.
4: Okay. You're not, not a lot of people. I mean, I didn't know the story until I was um, actually doing the research around the book. As soon as I learned that, so I thought, yes, yes, I'm going to hold that because that has to be the introduction to this book. It must be, particularly as this book Came up just after the Black Lives Matters um, anti-racism protests across the UK, across the USA. It was apt that someone like Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay would start this book, not as a boxer, as a cyclist. Muhammad Ali is not a boxer; he's a boxer by default. He's a cyclist. His bike was stolen.
0: I like that. It's sort of like an academic theory.
4: <laughs> I mean, I don't think he ever mentioned this. You know, in his interviews, he ever mentioned this. Um, White being stolen as to why he's the greatest, but you could argue things happen in life, don't they? You now, these moments happen that change your life, and and, and that's what it was that, that that is the seminal moment. Who else is in the book? Well, the book consists of 15 chapters, and I had a lot of fun writing the book. I mentioned that this was my first sort of non academic book, although there was a lot of academic framework in terms of researching the work because it comes from me doing lots of public exhibitions about these stories, but 15 chapters. The first chapter is called Breaking the Chain. And you can read a lot a lot into that in, in terms of, you know, the historical experiences of the Black Diaspora from Africa, Breaking the Chain. But the reason why I've given chapter one that particular name is because I, I begin by talking about some of the sort of seminal known Black champions in a sport, such as Major Taylor, of course, you know, the USA world champion in 1899, Kitty Knox. I talk about how they were a bit like, black squares fitting into white circles I mean it's a geometric calculation that cannot be done but these black cyclists were able to fit into the white circles of the sport and, and to excel I mean of course there was lots of desire from them to sort of you know they love the sport but there was also a lot of discrimination um, that they faced but they were determined just to be who they wanted to be in the sport with their love of cycling so hence the name of the book decide discrimination determination so The book really looks at these early stories of stepping into these white circles of the sport and aims to look for congruency in these stories 120 years ago to the current day, through the stories of some of the the athletes that I worked with. So, yeah, they they were kind of breaking the chain. You know, if you ride the bike hard enough and if you're powerful enough, you might break the chain. Hopefully you won't fall off and smash your head in. But there's a lot of analogies to life in general, to history, to cycling. Major Taylor, Kitty Knox, Abdul Qadir Zaf, who was one of the first Africans who rode in the Tour de France. Jermaine bronze in, in this as well. He was from Martinique. He raced around the same time as Major Taylor. I speak about some of the seminal South African cyclists who rode in the Rapporteurs of the 1970s. Um, so when there was uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa and, and South Africa were banned from racing their bikes internationally, the rebel Europeans would go over and race. And to make up the numbers in South Africa, they invited black riders to race against the Europeans. And in fact, some of these black riders who would never get a chance before were, were beating some of these white professionals from Europe, but we don't know the stories. I give a sense of those stories that, that do exist of these phenomenal um, black cycling champions. So yeah, it's just a case of like, uncovering the histories of black champions in the sport. And the book sort of opens up by, by giving a sense of that.
0: This is Bike Talk, I'm Nick Richard, and this is my interview about black champions in biking with Dr. Marlon Moncrief. Is it sort of a series of biographies?
4: You could call it that. The way that I've described it to um, to the folk is is a bit like me um, having some money and thinking, right, I'm going to have a massive dinner party. I'm going to invite all my friends in cycling, all my, you know, the guys that I know, black guys who've done cycling who haven't really been spoken about. Come to dinner. We're going to have a nice meal, lots of drink. We're just going to share our stories. You know, how do we get into the sport? Who are our idols? You know, what are the highs and lows? You know, what was the good, the bad and the ugly? So, yeah, we just sort of, you know, what I do is is kind of like, I tell my story. So it's very much an auto-ethnographic approach. Auto-me, ethno, um, and the cultural group and, and, and graphic, graphic, the study of that. I tell my story, but then I ask the next person to tell their story in relation to mine, and then they'll tell their story. And then I bring in the next person's story in relation to that and so on. I do that throughout each chapter, really. So I take some of their testimonies, but also link those to any sort of magazine articles that may have been written about them, I do that across cyclists from the USA, from the UK, um, from South Africa, from France. It's very much an international picture that I'm painting this book.
0: Amazing. So what is some of the feedback you've gotten?
4: (laughs) As I said earlier, I think one thing as a writer, because I didn't know I was going to be a writer. I mean, I always used to like writing, Even you know, used to race, but we used to like writing, you know, um, one of the things I got from this book is, and I say this to any writer: if, if you're writing, you are your own audience. First of all, you aim to amuse yourself. <laughs> you have to aim to sort of like do things that you think, "Wow, that's crazy, that's mad. I shouldn't write that, but I'm going to write it anyway." Kind of thing. You've got, you got to write it for yourself. You've got to research it for yourself because it was a it was a process of self discovery for me doing this um this book. So I'm the first audience, and I, I was really happy with it. I worked with a great team and that team in fact were the cyclists that I invited to dinner um, to tell their stories but also in terms of making the book working with Guy Andrews and Taz Darling from Blue Train Publishing as I said the visuals in this book really do um, complement the text it's very much a team effort in that respect sport is a team effort cycle is not an individual sport it's a team effort I mean if you're doing the time to us individual, you know, road racing or whatever, even track sprinting, team sprints, team sports. So it's very much a collaborative effort here. The, the visuals and the text really do work. And we dug deep. I mean, we used lots of personal photographs from the cyclists. We approached lots of pro photographers as well to help with, with making the book. And the field book was great. It won the Sunday Times Cycling Book of the Year um, for 2022. And that's, it got shortlisted for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year. So that's looking at um, all different sports. So That's like being nominated for an Oscar, if you want, in in Mm -hmm. sports writing, whilst with the Sunday Times cycle book, that's a bit like we're winning a BAFTA. Yeah. (laughs) Which is good. You know, know, I didn't write the book for an award, but this is, it went down that particular route. So it got a lot of good reception. And yeah, I still got asked to do podcasts with people like yourself. And, you know, so yeah, it was lovely doing it.
0: It sounds like something for when people come over to have out.
4: Well, people have been really nice. I mean, a guy called Fogel Mackay, um, Irish, um, he used to be a former racer, so he knows the sport. He's in his blood. He writes for a Podium Cafe book reviews. And yeah, he's a very, very bright guy, very intellectual guy. And his most recent review, he was able to sort of look at all the different nuances into how I went about thinking about this book, really. And his review, um, which has come out recently, Desired Discrimination Termination by Marlon learman Cree. If I were to read that particular review, he really does unpick and unravel my thought process in writing this book. And that, that was really cool. I think he says that it's a book for, if you're a bicycle fan, if it's in your blood, if cycling is your life, and you want to learn about other cyclists, people who live the same life as you, then this book should be on your bookshelf. So that, I mean, that's, that's just a fantastic compliment. And I think other commentators have said that as well. So yeah, as I said, it's team effort. It's got my name on the front of it, but I was curious myself. I was on a journey to learn from myself. It wasn't really our ego. It was, I wanted to know myself. I wanted to present other people's lives as well. And, and So I was able to come to the USA to do a bit of a book tour as well. It, because it came out of Rafa, I kind of pushed to come to New York. I'd never been to New York before. <laughs> I'm, I'm a man in his late 40s, and I have never been to New York. I haven't lived, have I? So I managed to um, get them to pay for me to come and do a book talk in New York, and I used some of that money to do another book talk in Philadelphia at the tricycle store in Philadelphia and also I stretched the money (laughs) right I didn't have any money in my pocket at the end but I stretched that to go to do another book talk in Charlotte and a club called Bank City so I can put quite a new club we're doing a bike ride as well so I kind of like created my own sort of like um, road show across the USA I've never been to the USA before and so I got the opportunity to share the book with the black cycling community in the USA. Because this book, it's not just made to tell you, you've got guys like Justin Williams, who gives his story. Nelson Bales gives his story. Um, Rashawn Bahati gives his story. You know, so I've got the great um, black American cyclists, you know, those USA national champions who've given me their story from getting into the sport, youth and junior riders to, to being what they are now there's a lot of American ownership in this book. And so to go to the USA for the first time to share the book, I went back again to Miami to look at the cycling scene down there to do a book talk. And then I I went to Atlanta, Georgia to the One Love Century ride, which is a massive four days of of cycling run by the Metro Atlanta Cycling Club. I, I was a sort of special guest And it was just an amazing event. I've never been to an event like that. Guys from all over the USA with the Major Taylor kits, Jesus Christ of the Black Cycling Community, Major Taylor. You know, this book has enabled me with my own energy to sort of bring it to different audiences. And at the moment now, I've been sharing it with audiences on the African continent. I've been to South Africa to share the book. I've been to Rwanda where the World Championships going to be held in 2025 to share the book as well. I talk a lot, don't I?
0: There's a lot to talk about. This is for you, the dinner party which didn't end really.
4: The dinner party started before the book because the actual academic research triggered the book. Where I knew that I wanted to do some investigations about, you know, these stories that hadn't been told as a collective, and and so I got some funding, won some funding, was denied first, but then I said oh, I I want, so I wrote for it again, and eventually I won it. And it's only a small amount of money, but that enabled me to put together some public exhibitions. So a bit like the road that I did in the USA before that and before the book, I created a public exhibition in Brighton. This is where I work, I work at the University of Brighton in the UK which is on the south coast of England. So yeah, I had my first public exhibition at the Grand Parade galleries and um, that got quite a bit of attention from the press, from the BBC, from the national body British cycling and that exhibition showcased about 10 of the Black British champions as a collective, told their stories so people could come into the exhibition, look at some photographs, look at some medals, jerseys, and read their stories. And then I I took that exhibition across the UK on on a road show um, to Hill Velodrome. So the World Championships in Yorkshire in 2019, wasn't it? Again, it got a lot of attention from the BBC. I did some stuff for the BBC. It obviously um, grabbed a lot of people's attention. And then, as I said, when the But Lives Matters anti-racism protests occurred. I guess that added a bit more weight to a consciousness about black people of the diaspora living in the Western world and looking at oppression and discrimination in different areas of life. It came at the right moment for me to to share the work, really. So, yeah, the dinner party kind of was, I guess, amongst the British cyclists. And then when I was asked to sort of write the book, because originally it was going to be a book for children. I wanted to write a book for children, Yeah. Really? You know, I used to do teaching in schools as well, so it could be a nice book for children. I think Rafa asked me to write it because of their associations with Justin Williams and Legion as well. And so, yeah, it's a case of me reaching out to the USA guys to ask for their stories and explaining that I was doing this book in combination with British guys and reaching out to people like Greg Bourget in France. I kind of know Greg Bourget a bit and um, to women like Mary Devine. She's a current elite world champion of 500 metres. She'll, she'll probably She's going to be a big face at the 2024 Olympics, um, reached out to Nicholas Clemene in South Africa. Did a bit more research around it. So yeah, the book enabled me to reach out from the UK hub to writers from across the world to give it that international feel, really. Um, so yeah, the dinner party was there before the book, more of the international dinner party during the writing of the book, and I'm dining out on it now. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. I got to get this book. It's desire, discrimination, determination. Black yeah. champions in cycling mm. by Dr. Marlon Lee Moncrief, Rafa Editions.
4: What I was lucky about with doing it with um, Blue Train as well is is that Guy Andrews and, and Taz, I think they saw that it would be quite a nice book. I think Taz was really happy with with how it was going. And where it comes to producing a manuscript, you produce it, and then it, when it goes to the editors you know, that's when the sort of swearing conversations start to occur in terms of what stays in what and what gets cut. So there were a couple of swearing conversations between myself and Guy about what stays and what gets cut. And I think I won most of those swearing conversations. You call them
0: swearing conversations? Is that the yeah. term?
4: Well, no, that's, that's my term. <laughs> because there's a lot of passion. There was a lot of passion in terms of, wait a minute, you know, that's got to stay in the book because that's the heart of the book. You can't rip the heart of the book out and have this book. You know, chapter one, breaking the chain. Chapter two, how did you get into it? Chapter three, what the f***ing hell are you doing here with us? So that stayed in. (laughs) Chapter four, let your legs do the talking. Chapter five, I just beat the rest of them out of sight. You know, chapter four and five are basically quotes from what some of the cyclists told me that their coaches told them. My coach told me, you know, you've got to let your legs do the talking. It's a common term in racing side. Don't listen to anybody else. Let your legs do the talking, man. Just beat the rest of them out of sight. There was Morris Burton talking about him winning this first... Nationals, Boycott of the Black Presence. So what's really nice about this book as well is that the focus isn't just on road and track cycling or road and leisure cycling, because it's not just about races. You've got some voices of leisure cyclists in this book as well, okay? At a certain rate, it's about the race and cyclists, guys that become racing cyclists, but Chapter 6 is very much, um, it's a deep snapshot of black BMX champions from the UK and from the USA, because, like, my exhibitions included BMX champions such as Dwayne Newellan who was Three times European champion Trey White, Charlie Reynolds. We do pick up on some of the USA black champions, such as Tommy Brackens, Anthony Sewell. You know these guys because the um, UK scene was almost like it became the epicenter of BMX in the mid 1980s. A lot of the um, Americans would come and race over in the UK during the 80s. So guys like guys that I've just mentioned sort of try and win. Win some of the races here. So, for example, Tommy Brackets became the world champion in the UK. I think it was in 1985, wasn't it? That particular world championship in 1985, out of the eight finalists, I think four or five of them were black. And I think you know you wouldn't get that in many other disciplines of the sport. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get it in track cycling apart from sprint, maybe. You wouldn't get it in road racing, so shows you that BMX is an accessible entry for black people in the sport, not just in the UK, but in the USA as well. So that chapter there, we've got the black presence speaks about how there was a rider called Gary Llewellyn, who was basically a dominant rider. He was a younger rider as well than most of the white sort of professionals, but he used to beat the white professionals day in, day out. And because he was given the opportunity to ride in those world championships, they decided to withdraw their entries. They boycotted the race. So, that's where that title comes from they were boycotting the black presence in that respect so you, you learn a bit more about that and at one point it was disputed by some of the um uk cyclists when the book came out and they were they were screaming a little bit about it but i think they've uh, the dummies have been put back in their mouths now so that's cool and so the dark destroyer that's just an analogy of something that happened to me you know i was called the dark destroyer by some of my teammates because i used to win the races or you know why are you, why are you giving me that particular term that's you know, it was really funny that they were, they were calling me the Dark Destroyer because there was a boxer called Nigel Ben. who was a UK boxer and that, that was his nickname. And I think that was the only reference that they could give to me because oh, I was a black man, you know? Oh, we know another black man He's a boxer called Nigel Ben, the yeah. Dark Destroyer. These chapters really sort of go deep down into the consciousness of the cyclists or the context. As I said earlier about those swearing conversations, at the heart of this book, every book you write, if you're going to be a writer, you know, you might write 10 chapters, 12 chapters, 15 chapters. But for the books that I've written, there's always one significant chapter that's almost like the catalyst. That was a critical moment for me. So the chapter called The Velodrome of Whiteness, called call it The Velodrome of Whiteness. That's me reflecting on that particular moment of seeing Great Britain jubilation of their cyclists, you know, all white cyclists. For me, it was like a velodrome of whiteness. So, yeah, I'm from Great Britain. I'm, you know, I'm a patriot. You know, if I were to go to war tomorrow I'd have to fight with Great Britain, well, that's what would happen. But this representation of Great Britain wasn't the multicultural representation that I grew up in. So I was kind of questioning that. It wasn't that convivial diversity that I saw. And, and there's always disputes about that in every country in terms of ethnicity and, and, and tribalism. So, yeah, I was kind of looking at that through a cycling lens. And that chapter, The Velodrome of Whiteness, that's the heart of the book. And yeah, there was some disputes about that chapter as well. I think there was a bit of nervousness about it. When the manuscript came back, it wasn't there. I thought, what's going on? <laughs> Put it back in. And so yeah, that's why we had the swearing conversations. And, and then it went back in. And I'm glad it did because it, it, it's an important chapter. And then towards the end of the book, we move away from the testimonies. And it's more about, so what next? How can we help to improve cycling? What next? What can we do? So we speak about the world of cycling facing up to anti-blackness in the sport, in the different levels of the sport, from novice level to to leisure cycling spaces, to create more pathways for ethnicity and diversity to move through the ranks in more white-dominated countries. Then we kind of speak about the spotlight on the African continent and the growth of cycling, particularly in countries like um, Rwanda and Eritrea, of course, there's a deep history of some fantastic cyclists over there. You know, it's not it's not a new thing. These guys who are emerging now, Binyam I, Henock stand on the shoulders of of champions before them. So it's a case of looking at how the African continent can be developed from the 2025 World Championships. But not to divert away from the issues in white-dominated countries. So we recognise there's a really interesting growth happening on the African continent, but we shouldn't divert from the issues in in countries such as USA, the UK, where there's still this sort of consultative, and particularly in road and track cycling. Give my mouth a rest now, should I?
0: <laughs> You're doing a great job of representing your book. Normally on Bike Talk, we don't do sport. It's mainly about bike advocacy, but this yeah. is definitely a form of bike advocacy.
4: Yeah, it is. As I said at the top of the talk, you, know, you make a decision, or God makes a decision for you, or your heart makes a decision for you as to whether Biking is going to be your life. And that decision was made for me, I think, when I started doing my paper round when I was a kid, you know, you know, delivering papers on my BMX without a saddle. We used to have to stand up all the time, you have a saddle on it, you know. You know, it's a ride to school. I wasn't racing then. It's a ride to work before I was racing. Bikes has always been part of my life. And, you know, I still ride to work now when I need to. I don't race anymore. My daughter races. Well, she doesn't race so much anymore. She's a big teenager now i 've got bikes dotted all around the house. I used to be a bit of a teacher. Every single school that I used to work at i wouldn't leave that school without having left a cycling club.
0: <laughs> I did that as a teacher too. I started yes. a couple
4: because that's what we do that's what we do. We foster it. we foster it and not just for racing but for for the lifestyle you know for the freedom. How far can a bicycle take you? Always share that quote how not just actively, but in terms of the people you meet. I'm talking to you today in the USA. This is this is what the bicycle's done for me. This is what the life's done for me. And you're interested in that. And I'm, I'm really I'm really happy about it. It makes me feel proud about it. So, yeah, it's a fantastic lifestyle. And I wouldn't change it for anything, you know. And you know, I continue to meet people in this world. It's, it's a pluriverse. It, it really is. So deep. I do everything to... Champion the sport. Yeah, I'm a black man. I'm talking about it from a black lens because I wanted to do that. But the schools that I've worked at, I've worked at all white schools. We're doing a cycling club. I don't care. what worked at more black schools. We're doing a cycling club, mixed schools. So yeah, it bites for everybody. You can get the opportunity for able bodied. You know, even if you have a disability, there's ways and means in which you can do it because it's good for your heart. It's good for your blood. And so yeah, that's why Muhammad Ali was so angry. <laughs> because he knew what it was about as a bike have you ever had a bike stolen from you
0: i wrote about it as a kid in in my creative writing class i called it in memorandum and i got corrected it's in memoriam but it was about uh my mongoose bmx bike that oh, was stolen oh man oh that
4: must have <laughs> killed you that must have yeah. you must have wanted to it's horrible. It's just the most horrible, yeah, I had my most stolen as well. And, you know, it was after an examination. I did so well at this examination. I thought, yeah, brilliant. I went downstairs to get my bike and it was like from a high to a low. My bike was stolen. I was just yeah. like, I was, I was in consulate for about two weeks, you know. I was, Went back to the same spot every day. <sighs> <laughs> That's what the bike means to us, you know. You have to love it and it's a big community.
0: I'm going to get this book.
4: And um, what's your other colleague's name?
0: Taylor, Seamus, yeah. Lindsay.
4: Get them to send me the address and I'll, I'll pop one in the post. I can do that as, as, a, as a colleague, as, as a comrade, as a fellow cyclist. It's just a piece of art. It's a book. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's just a piece of art. Some people like it. Some people, and that's what a book is. It's a piece of art. It's not going to change the world. It's going to give people... Some insights into other people's worlds. And that's nice. That's a nice thing.
0: Thank you, Dr. Marlon Lee Moncrief. Desire, discrimination,
4: desire, discrimination, determination, the Black Champions in Cycling by Rafa Editions, Blue Train Publishing. Um, it can be obtained online through the Rafa store if I'm not out of stock. I do get emails from time to time from people asking me to send books over so I can do that. I've got a few books in, in in the shed down there. If you want one, I can do it for you. Laugh, some fun.
1: No problem. That was great, Nick. Thanks. You know, we often hear about how cycling is just a white sport, and it's so important to hear of people that were involved in cycling of different races.
2: I'm reading the fastest bicycle rider in the world, Major Taylor's diary. The way that they attacked him in these races literally changed how people race bikes. He built his entire strategy around racist other cyclists blocking him out and doing all these things. And so that whole drafting and all of that stuff comes from Major Taylor.
1: And our next book is On Freedom Road.
3: Yeah. Galen Mook has an amazing interview with a former climate scientist and blogger who wrote a book, this really thoughtful and illuminating bicycle journey he took along the Underground Railroad, Seeking to Engage with American History. So here's Galen's interview with David Goodrich.
5: Next up, we have David Goodrich for this wonderful segment on long distance touring. Now, David is formerly a climate scientist with NOAA. He is a long distance touring cyclist, and he said that he's ridden 3,000 miles on the Underground Railroad route. David, thank you so much for joining us on Bike Talk. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we jump right in? I am super curious to hear about the trip and the generation of it. How did you get the idea to follow the route of the Underground Railroad? Basically, it came from two
6: sources. One, I did a ride on the Trans Am, Delaware to Oregon, right after I retired. And one of the places that I just stumbled in on was a museum in Vandalia, Illinois, and just was a little town museum. And the woman there handed me this brass ring and said, you know what that is? I said, No idea. She said, that's a slave collar. And it's like, okay. Wow. And then she was saying that this was a route of the Underground Railroad. And in the back of my head, I kind of filed this, oh, I could ride this. And then the other thing was that when I was over in England, not cycling, we have some family connections to the area around Bristol in Western England. There is a Goodrich Castle there, which is kind of a fixer-upper. I stopped in another museum, the Museum of the Commonwealth, and they had an exhibit on John Goodrich, who was a captain in the 1700s, on the Middle Passage. And that was another kind of a okay moment.
5: Yeah. Where, uh, that's heavy, man.
6: Yeah. We all like to think, oh, our ancestors must have been nobly helping people along on the Underground Railroad. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out that way.
5: Yeah, that's fascinating and kind of the existential grappling with our own societal past. You have a great blog. It's called crazyguyonabike.com. And you've basically got your trials and your stories and your photos up on here. It's wonderful. And I recommend all of our listeners to go check it out. Let's talk a little bit about bike touring, because this is not your only trip, right? You've done across the country. You've kind of done thematic rides. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experiences just out on the roads, carrying all your gear and living life on the road.
6: It's actually kind of fun. The longest ride I ever did was the Trans Am, the Delaware to Oregon. Mm -hmm. It's now 12 years on. I can remember almost hour by hour what I was doing on that ride. Mm -hmm. I can't remember anything else from what I was doing 12 years ago. But it's a very vivid way of experiencing things because you just wake up in the mornings. No matter how well you've got it planned, there's something that's going to come at you that you're not expecting. Whether, Whether or somebody just picking up your tab for lunch out of the blue. That happens sometimes. For me, my particular logistics or routine was I try to ride about 60 miles a day. That's a good haul. It's a good haul, but it also gives you time to stop. I kind of coded for myself as I have a job that I only have to work five hours a day. 12 miles an hour, that's 60 miles. And you've got time to explore the land a little bit to to see things along the way to talk to people. And especially when you're riding solo, you're approachable. People talk to you. I mean, you have the slowest getaway car imaginable if you need to get out. Yeah. 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 So people are not exactly threatened by you. And in some ways, they sort of think, oh, you poor guy. (laughs) But it's not like that. It's just you really can experience things. I used to work on ships for NOAA for a living, for National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And one of the big things is coming in from at sea, your first landfall is typically a lighthouse coming up from the horizon, from the curve of the Earth. And when you're out on the Great Plains, it's the same kind of thing, except you're kind of beat up. You've been in the wind. You're looking forward to that next town. And the towns are kind of spread out a little bit. And the first thing you'll see of the new town is the water tank coming up above the horizon. Okay.
5: (laughs) Almost here. A sign of civilization out there. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to dive a little bit into your history with Noah, because as a climate scientist, how does that play into the way that you experience the landscape?
6: I can see some things kind of from my own climate background that resonate with me. For example, when I was riding across and in my mental bulletin board was the Rockies, and I thought, okay, I'm all acclimatized. And I went into the Rockies in back of Fort Collins, Colorado. So it's about a mile vertical climb, I did it in two days, and I was pretty beat by the time I summoned it, except I started looking around and the hillsides are gray. You have forests and forests and forests and they're all dead. And this is the mountain pine beetle. Mm-hmm. Yes. The mountain pine beetle's been around for a while, but as the winters have gotten shorter in the high altitude, the bugs basically can get two generations during the course of the non-cold season. And trees have not evolved to fight that. And so you see big, big stretches up and down the Rockies of dead and dying trees. And that's all climate change. That's all. The winters are shorter. You don't get the 20, 30 below winters that you did before. Not to mention the fires. I got stuck dodging a few fires out west during some of the rides, and the fires have gotten distinctly larger and more frequent out west, and that's another piece of climate change.
5: Right. On an existential and a philosophical level, how does it feel to both study it and then also experience in such a firsthand account and kind of see the visceral examples?
6: Well, but I used to do at NOAA and also worked for the U.M. running this global climate observing system, and you're sort of at a distance from it. You're dealing with observing systems and the data and satellite images. Yep. It's a whole different thing to just stumble on it and say, okay, this is what we were looking at. And it mm. gets you a little bit more in the pit of your stomach. There's a place on Delaware Bay where I rode to, where you can see a barrier island that basically has disintegrated over the course of the last 20 years with sea level rise. And you can see foundations of old beach houses in the water. So I study a lot of jagged lines of records from tide gauges, from sea level gauges. Seeing foundations in the water makes it a little bit
5: different. Yeah, that's fascinating, but also kind of heartbreaking at the same time. And I appreciate that we started off this conversation with you kind of digging into the social historical side of these bike tours and then seeing kind of the ecological side of the bike tours. What I also appreciate about your work is that you are extolling the benefits of bicycling and whatever angle that folks want to kind of experience the world and biking really brings that to reality at, like you say, a 12 mile an hour pace, you can really experience life in its fullest. Yeah,
6: I have a number of friends that I tour with, and they all say it's just like, I think I'm most alive when I'm on tour. Now, you're also getting beat around a little bit from time to time.
5: That's how you know you're
6: alive, right? Yeah, that's that's probably true. We're kind of riding in almost every condition. I don't think I've ever ridden in snow, and I don't like to ride in electrical storms.
5: Wise decisions, yeah.
6: (laughs) You've written a couple books about this too, huh? Yes. I've got actually a couple over my shoulder. The latest one I have is called On Freedom Road, which is about the Underground Railroad bike tours. And then the first book I wrote is this one called A Hole in the Wind. I got the title of that from riding across Kansas going east to west, sort of the wind direction, and that what I was looking for every day was trying to find a hole in the wind <laughs> where I could manage to make it that particular
5: next day through. Yeah. I've found something similar when I do my long distance touring of having a mantra that you can just kind of keep running in the back of your mind to keep you focused and keep you riding. And that's a good one. I think I'm going to steal that one from you. So just to close out, I'm curious if you have any tips on long distance touring that you want to share with our listeners. I'd say get good waterproof gear. I mean, Cortex is
6: actually pretty nice. And also make sure your bags, the panniers are good and waterproof, especially if you're camping you really don't want to pull in after a day in the rain and then discover, oh, my sleeping bag's soaked.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: That's not very fun. Although I'll have to say, I spend a lot more time in motels now than I used to. But my Frederick that I ride with says, after one particular memorable experience in Iuka, Mississippi, he said, I don't mean to criticize your standards. I just haven't been able to detect any.
5: Be <laughs> <You're> good, buddy. You <laughs> <And>, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. No, waterproofing is absolutely key as well. I would put that as the number one. I always like to say, because I ride in the rain when I have to, you know, if your gear is 95% waterproof, you're going to get a hundred percent wet. Yeah. Yep, (laughs) indeed. What kind of cycling do you do? Great question. I do all sorts. So I do the day to day. I live in Alston and my daily commute around Boston area typically has it quicker and faster by bike and cheaper. So that's when I go to the office, regardless of the weather, I'm usually a a 10-mile-a-day rider just to do my daily commute. Once or twice a year, we will do some long-distance touring. Me and my partner are pretty well-traveled together. Last year, we went up to Cape Breton in Nova Scotia and did the Cabot Trail. It's actually on my list for this summer. I'd love to get up there. It's so good. We've done this twice now. The first time we did it, we did it with a charity group called Climate Ride, and it's a aggregate of a fundraising group and it was wonderful and nice to get the cushy experience and get the locals. But this last time we did it on our own so we could spend a little bit more time and explore. Highly recommend doing it in October because the foliage is just off the charts. My only concern is you want to make sure that you're doing it still in the on-season because when they hit the off-season, everything shuts down. And I mean, every restaurant, every hotel closes up right after Indigenous People's Day weekend, essentially. So, Try to do it in early October if you get the chance. It's basically a national park for the whole 300-mile loop. Highly recommend that. And I've done the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is great. I had to turn around because there was still a mudslide that had taken out a part of the road, and there was no way around it except to go on the highway. So I was like, well, you know what? I'll just turn around and take the Shenandoah Valley back up. And that was also wonderful to kind of experience both the rural mountainside on the ridge and then to take the valley back up and experience the communities along the route. You were over 11, right? And dodged around a bit. I'm actually from Northern Virginia. So I had some friends and had some connections down there in Western Virginia. So that was a good one. And around Massachusetts, I worked statewide with MassBike. So always try to do a couple of rides. First year of COVID, we took a train out to Wachusett by Fitchburg and then did a loop around the Quabbin Reservoir, stopped a bunch of in the Connecticut River Valley, and then kind of ended up back in Worcester and then took a train back in. Not too bad. It was on a four day trip. It was camping and this was back in the pre-vax days. So everything had to be outdoors even filling water bottles became a challenge because hotels wouldn't let us in and restaurants wouldn't fill our bottles. And so finding amenities always became a little bit of a challenge out there. And then there's East Coast Greenway, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's the route that goes basically from Calais, Maine at the tip by Canada all the way down to Key West, Florida. It has a great cut through in Massachusetts. So I like to pick and choose two or three or four day trips following along the East Coast Greenway because that's already been routed and it's generally pleasant and takes you to some of the most bucolic and beautiful little spots in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm.
6: My daughter graduated from Dartmouth now some years back, and this project right up to her graduation from here in Maryland. And I remember the stretch of the one piece from Williamstown up into Vermont. I think we went past Mount Snow. I went yep. back calculated. I think I did more vertical on that one day than any place else I've been. It was just crazy. They had a stretch right by Mount Snow. It was midsummer or June, and they were repaving the road. And there was just this stink of asphalt. It was to a single lane. My friend and I were climbing up there to where the cars that were stopped to go the other way gave us applause as we came. (laughs) Yeah, I think we deserve that.
5: It's buff. It's true, I find, and you've probably experienced this striking across country is that the hills in the east just the grade of the road is so much steeper yeah. than the standards that were built later on further out west and i find exactly the same the toughest routes are the berkshires the green mountains ostensibly low-level mountains compared to going from the front range in fort collins to the divide but just there's no way around they just built the road basically straight and that meant straight up at some places
6: in Western Pennsylvania, there's a CNO Canal up from DC to Cumberland, Maryland, and then from Cumberland to Pittsburgh, there's the Great Allegheny Passage, which is all very nice and perfectly graded because it was an old rail trail. Mm-hmm. But when I went, got off of that and went west on the roads, it was exactly as you described. It was like 1,000 feet up, 1,000 feet down, repeat four times during the course of the day. And those were the nastiest hills in the country.
5: Yep. No, I hear you. My limit's at about 4,000 feet of climbing in a day. Yeah. When I hit that, I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I've only done 30 miles today, but that's enough. There is a
6: woman that I've ridden with quite a bit who actually joined me on the Harriet Tubman part of this. Her name's Lynn Salvo. She's from the DC area here. She lives in McLean. Mm -hmm. She's got the Guinness records for the oldest woman to ride across the US and also across Canada. And I think she's just getting bored this summer, so she's going to ride across again on Northern Tier. And I'm going to join her going across the Adirondacks, greens, and whites, kind of the last part of her ride. And so we describe described this as we will be the over-the-hill gang. We're both over 70. <laughs>
5: it's good to have a bit of humor, but it's also good to have some cheerleaders. So I appreciate that you're going to be there for moral support as well. Well, David, it's been a real pleasure to learn about your trips and hear about some of your personal experiences and the reasons as to why you go and explore on two wheels. This has been a lovely chat. And Galen, it's very good to be in touch with somebody from Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of my favorite places. That's right. We are broadcasting out of MIT and then also out in Western Mass and in LA as well. So for folks who are out there, if you're in LA and you want to bike out to Cambridge, we're here for you. Some long distance touring is well encouraged. Well, thanks. David Goodrich, who has written two wonderful books about riding the Underground Railroad. Actually, three books, isn't it? And has a wonderful blog called crazyguyonabike.com. You can check him out. And David, thanks so much for joining us here on Bike Talk. Thanks very much, Gail. Appreciate it.
1: When I first moved to L.A., I drove a car for Project Angel Food, delivering meals to homebound people. But now in Toronto, they're doing that by bike.
2: Yeah, we're going to hear from Bike Talk's Toronto correspondent, Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. She's interviewing John Gruber-Benech of Toronto's Bike Brigade.
7: So welcome, John Gruber-Benech. We're talking because you're involved with the Bike Brigade, which is an organization that started around the time of the pandemic starting. Can you tell me about what the Bike Brigade is and what you do?
8: It started right around the uh, first lockdown, so we're coming up on three years It's a volunteer-based group, an intersectional equity-seeking organization um, with a focus on climate and environmental justice, but we're probably best known for delivering food on bikes.
7: And having really good t-shirts.
8: Our sweatshirts are coming along just fine too. We've got great merch.
7: You deliver food on bikes. How does that work?
8: So we deliver for a lot of Similarly, uh, equity-seeking groups. There's a lot of food banks in there. There's a lot of different community-based organizations of, of all kinds. In a lot of cases, we're delivering food from a food bank or a similar organization to uh, a recipient or an, an individual in need. Essentially, that's the sort of territory we cover. We hit that last-mile delivery between the food providers and the recipients. And it, the the demand has skyrocketed. You know since not only pre-pandemic days, but even since early pandemic days, the, the need is so much higher now than it was. It's, you know, something really alarming, and it's something that we're really proud to uh, try and make a little difference in.
7: You know, the Bike talks about, you know, seeking equity and seeking justice and promoting um, food security. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this kind of fits into that model in fostering those things as opposed to being like, a band-aid solution like a food bank that you know in an ideal world we wouldn't even need such a thing
8: you know anyone who follows us on social media who has heard you know, other members of the bike brigade talk will say that you know we're not pro reliance on food banks we're not pro price inflation that requires us to go take a ride we're, we're really trying to change the environment that we're in we're trying to say the status quo isn't good enough and we're trying to change it so you know in addition to deliveries we we also uh, engage in some policy advocating we have been involved in some you know fundraising efforts and things like that and we're also working with organizations not just food banks but also groups like uh food share that you know are are trying to find the spot and say well food insecurity is a real issue a food bank is not necessarily a uh, solution to food insecurity. It's not necessarily culturally relevant. It's really just the best we can do. You know, we're, we're trying to make positive change. We're not trying to say, hey, this is the status quo, and we're just happy to be a part of it. We, we are, you know, working for change. We are working to make, uh, you know, our cities less reliant on cars, less food insecure.
7: So what motivated you to get involved with the Bike Brigade?
8: Uh, I joined pretty early days. Um, I think my first ride was probably July 2020. It was really an intersection of a lot of things. There's, you know, the activism, trying to change the status quo. There's the physical activity. There's the, you know, building community, engaging in community aspect to it where uh, you know you, you trick yourself into thinking you're doing a favor for someone else when really it is so rewarding it is so engaging that it has really been a transformational experience for me I started the way probably a lot of uh, our writers have where you know you hear about it from someone or a friend tells you about it you say oh I'm not sure about that I'll you know it sounds kind of interesting but a, a little uh, strange too and I'll give it a try and Of course, I did it once and I was hooked. I was going every week. um, And I've also joined as a a logistics organizer. It's got its hooks in me and it's hugely rewarding and I'm happy to advocate for it.
7: What kind of reactions do you get from people, like if you're out and about riding or if you're doing deliveries? We
8: we have really great relationships with our partners. Um, Of course, we have amazing relationships with our recipients. Um, A lot of them are people who, you know, we become familiar with, who we become very friendly with. Um, Sometimes a deliverer is the, you know, only person that recipient might see for a few days. So that engagement, that personalization, I think is really something strong and meaningful that a rider gets out of this relationship too. Instead of, you know, having a car with six boxes of groceries where, you, you know, you're trying to make just a bunch of quick stops, you really do have a great opportunity to sort of lay bare and say, hey, I'm here, I, I brought you something, you do get to build my uh, great experience.
2: You're listening to Bike Talk with Madeline Bonsma, Fisher's interview on delivering food and medicine by bike with John Guberbanish
7: of Toronto's Bike Brigade. Yeah, you touched on something that I was going to ask you more about, which is what do you think uh, is special about bikes in doing this? Is there anything that makes bikes particularly suited to this type of thing?
8: Probably before starting this, I would have said that, you know, the, the best part of it is that bikes aren't cars. And that if a if cyclist is doing it, that means a car isn't. And, you know, that's that's a net win. If you're already engaged as a cyclist, you're probably already making some sort of determination of, no, I want my future. I want, like, my community. I want my city. I want my planet to be. A little different than the direction that I see it heading in. There's some, I think you call it, minor activism, just in the act of like taking a bike ride when a car is like the default design unit of the city. I think another part of it is uh, people see like a lot of kindness and like innocence and like childhood association with bikes. So when you know you come into a person's house, they, they I think they might automatically assume you're like nicer or more polite because you rode a bike instead of a pickup truck. I don't know if there's anything to that. But I think a big part of it is we are trying to build community and not necessarily just say, okay, why don't we just have one person put all these in a truck and make the delivery? We're trying to give volunteers an opportunity to interact with recipients. There is a relationship where you say, I'm not taking for a list of 30 people. I'm taking a grocery order for one or two people and that individual relationship that is like the the building block of community is that you look at an individual and say you know we are together we are neighbors we are you know building a future more like what we want it to be
7: more human scale in every way yeah,
8: more human scale. Um, that's not to knock the drivers that our partners work with. Um, we know that there is still a lot of reliance on vehicles and that they do meaningful work. I think that's something that a lot of our riders look at as, you know, a reason to keep coming back is you are able to build connections. You're able to enjoy, you know, the act of doing the delivery of going for a ride of, you know, it, it feels like a real back to basics, you know, just doing the most, simple thing, taking time to do something that makes your community more like what you want it to be.
7: Have you discovered new parts of the city while doing this or anything like that?
8: Oh, absolutely. I've learned a whole lot from from riding with the Bike Brigade. Not only new parts of the city, I've learned a lot about cycling. I wasn't a full-year cyclist before I volunteered with them. I probably wasn't even comfortable carrying all my own groceries before I started volunteering with them. I didn't know how to apply bike grease or anything like that. So the Bike Breed offers a lot of resources to make people more comfortable in sort of every aspect of the delivery, whether it's, you know, learning about the organizations we work with, learning about bikes, learning about bike safety and your rights and everything like that. There are so many resources that we're given and that we, you know, create for each other that. It's an organization that sort of tries to foster the community that it's sort of built, where it's trying to say, well, if you're, you know, if you're wanting to do this, let's make it easier for you. Let's make it, you know, a more comfortable, safer experience We're we're not trying to recruit people to put more weight on their back than they're comfortable with. We're not trying to send people to neighborhoods that they don't want to go to. We're really trying to say, hey, you know, if you want to join us, we want to make it as low barrier as possible. We want to make it as easy and as rewarding as possible.
7: Do you ride through the winter now? Do you carry groceries on your bike? Like, did that translate to changes in your your regular life?
8: Yeah, it it absolutely has. Um, I ride all year. I ride to areas where I might not have previously. Um, I ride safer than I did before. Um, Not necessarily slower, um, but safer (laughs) more generally. Um, I ride, you know, in a lot more control with better gear, with a much better understanding of, uh, not only the law, but of you know driver behaviors and things like that. Um, and I've just become myself more reliant on my bike as you know a primary means of transport, as the primary thing I use to carry things from one space to another. It's really given me uh, a lot personally. Just the the things that I've done, you know, as a volunteer, have given me a lot personally.
7: Can you tell me about a moment of bike joy that you've experienced?
8: I did a a challenging delivery a couple of weeks ago where I was, I had a trailer behind me and I was carrying something heavy and I went up a hill. For anyone familiar with Toronto, I was going up from the water towards uh, St. Clair. When you're in a challenging situation like that, sometimes you're, you know, you're so directly focused on, you know, one breath, left foot, right foot, uh, you know, just making it happen. But when you Realize that at the end of it, especially as a fixed gear cyclist, you know, being able to ride something challenging and then reap the rewards of going downhill afterwards. I think that's a a simple moment of bike joy.
7: I love that. Is there anything else that you want to talk about, about the bike brigade or about biking that you feel like we haven't covered
8: um, I'd love to talk to you about the Bike Brigade for many, many hours. It's, it's you know, a, a great uh, experience that that I've had. Um, if I can, I'd like to just shout out. You know, we've accomplished an incredible amount in three years. Our riders have just between their pickup and delivery spot ridden over 82,000 kilometers. We have almost 750 unique people who have delivered at one point or another. Uh, we're going to come up on 30 thousand delivered units whether that's meals groceries fridges filled anything like that um, and we're you know always looking to reach new cyclists we're looking to support anyone in need and if you're you know interested in supporting us if you're interested in supporting our partners um, in any way we're always listening we're always here uh, bike or bike brigade the bike brigade on twitter instagram uh, we'd love to hear from
7: you awesome
0: and that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week.
5: Oh, get that car out of my way. I want to ride my bike today. keeps me fit, get me there. I won't go stinking up the air. Leave behind the day grind. Now let your mind unwind. Give a life, tend to life. Better get yourself a bike.